As most of you know, we're taking several weeks to discuss the subject of baptism, and obviously, since we're Heritage Baptist Church, I'm presenting this from a Baptist view. And uh, today, we're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus. And we're going to seek to answer the question, why was Jesus baptized? So uh, before we begin, though, I'd like for us to pray and to ask the Lord to help us as we look into his word. Our Father, we are always very aware of our need for your help and assistance. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would be our guide as we look at the word that you yourself have uh, inspired. And we pray that we might accurately understand this subject of baptism, and in particular today, uh, why it is that you, our Lord Jesus, were baptized when you were on this earth. So we pray for your help. We pray for your guiding my tongue and, the, and your helping the ears of those who are here to listen. And we pray that we would have um, a profitable time in your scriptures this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So begin with, to begin with, before we move ahead, I'd like to ask you, are there any blanks that you need filled in on the first column of this chart that you have, that I've handed out to you? Okay, we've discussed so far, last couple of weeks, John's baptism of repentance, and um, so any blanks that you need filled in. <clears throat> if not, they're going to be going on and we'll be talking about <clears throat> excuse me, the second column in this chart. We'll be, we're good, we're, we are going to work our way through it. And uh, the second column in the chart here, uh, all of this, these first three columns dealing with the preparation for Christian baptism. And then eventually we will get to the last two columns which deal with the establishment of Christian baptism. So if there are no questions about that, we will... Uh, do a little bit of a review now of what we've co covered in the last two weeks. The very last Okay, what I would put in there, you, I, to make this alliterative, you can use the word meaning, okay? And you'll see the alliteration as we go through. But this is the meaning of baptism, or you could, you could also put in there the subjects of baptism. I'll mention that here shortly again. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, let's, um, let's take a moment to do a little bit of review of what we covered the first couple of weeks here, uh, because they tie in eventually with uh, what we're covering today and what we will cover next time. Uh, so we're looking, we looked at John's baptism of repentance, and we said that the baptism of repentance denotes the fact of purification and forgiveness granted to the repentant, and that his baptism is has four characteristics, and first of all, we saw that it is one of preparation. His, baptize, his baptism is one of preparation. John's baptism involved, and his, his whole mission and his whole ministry involved <clears throat> what, we call, what I'm calling preparation, spiritualization, universalization, and reorganization. Now, with regard to preparation, John's mission and his baptism designed by God and prophesied by the prophets Isaiah and Malachi was 
to prepare Israel and ultimately the world for the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. John prepared the people by preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the same message that Jesus would come along and preach very shortly after John began preaching it. The kingdom was at hand because the king is at hand. The Messiah was there. That was John's mission of preparation and his baptism tied in with that. Secondly, we saw that there was spiritualization involved, and that is that John also prepared the people by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. There's a spiritual aspect, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, or we could call it the cleansing from sins, or we could say that's purification. His message and his baptism were designed to prepare the people spiritually for the reception of the king, King Jesus, the Messiah, and for entrance into his kingdom. And then the third aspect that we looked at is the aspect of what I call universalization. Now, these terms are, by the way, not original with me. Uh, I am borrowing them from a DHM thesis by a fellow named Greg Hefstetler, who's been a pastor for, I think, probably 45 years now, faithful pastor in, um, in Pennsylvania, good friend of mine, and uh, actually my former pastor as well. But anyway, so the, this terminology, the use, the, the use of the words universal, universalization simply means that John announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The word world in that announcement pointed to an expanding focus on the universal spread of the kingdom of God, meaning that the Messiah would not die just for Israel, but also for the world, as John announced. There would be some, ultimately, and this is in seed form, but it's going to blossom and grow, but there are going to be some from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. We're not talking about universal atonement. We're talking about the universal spread of the gospel and of God's kingdom. God's announcement was in accord with Zechariah's proph- Zechariah's prophecy, his dad, Zechariah, the prophecy that John would prepare the way for the one who would bring to pass the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, part of which was that the Abraham is that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then also Zechariah also prophesied that his son John would prepare the way for the Messiah, who would shine upon those who sit in darkness, which according to Isaiah 9. Uh, verses 1 and 2 include the Gentiles as well as Israel. And so that was the hint at the beginnings of this universal aspect to the coming of the Messiah and John's baptism and his message uh, incorporated that. And then lastly, we saw the reorganization of God's people, the theocracy was going to be dissolved and the New Testament church (coughs) begun. And so spiritualization, spiritualization, that is preparing the people spiritually by requiring repentance and ultimately faith in in the coming one. Spiritualization and this universalization, this the fact that it's going out to the world, that he's going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, spiritualization and universalization require then a reorganization of the outward manifestation of God's people. John's message and his baptism meant that God's people and the manifestation of God's kingdom 
were being reorganized along spiritual lines. God's people are only the repentant ones, and repentance is required to enter his kingdom. In the Old Testament period, under the Old Covenant, God manifested his kingdom outwardly through the outward ethnic nation of Israel. And so Israel was there, and you read the Old Testament, you find over and over again there's Israel fighting other nations and and Israel being the the people of the God Jehovah. And so there's this outward ethnic national manifestation of God's kingdom under the Old Covenant. Now, though, with the coming of the Messiah, the Israelite the Israelite theocracy is being dissolved as the manifestation of God's people. We don't have Israel today going out. In, well, there's, of course, fighting in Israel, but they're not fighting there as God's people manifesting the kingdom of Jehovah. The manifestation of God's kingdom today is through the New Testament church. And that is going to be the new manifestation of God's people in God's kingdom. With the coming of Jesus, God's kingdom is going to be reorganized so that it is, so that its manifestation is going to be through a people who first meet his spiritual requirements. Repentance and faith in the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins is a spiritual requirement. And so John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Now, just to make sure that I'm clear for anybody who might be wondering or hearing this on, on the tape or whatever. Um, To be clear, God always had a spiritual people, even under the Old Covenant. There was always a true spiritual, there were always true spiritual believers, true repenters, even under the Old Covenant. They, along with the New Testament believers, will comprise the one spiritual people of God. However, As I said, under the Old Covenant, a person could legitimately be called one of God's people, at least outwardly, in an outward way. They could be legitimately be called one of God's people simply by being born an Israelite and being circumcised, even though that individual had not repented. But this outward manifestation of God's kingdom through Israel was done away with by the coming of the Messiah and the inauguration of the new covenant. Now, the outward manifestation of God's kingdom is going to be through the church, and the church is to be composed of only the faithful, repentant ones. So, that's the significance that is behind John's mission and the significance of John's Baptism, And so therefore, we see John's baptism of the repentance created a spiritual nation, a spiritual people of God within the outward nation of the ethnic people of God. We have the ethnic Israelites, but John would only baptize those who had repented. And by doing so, he's creating a spiritual nation marked by baptism within that external physical nation. And so that's why um, only the spiritually prepared are eligible for for John's baptism. And by being baptized, they were marked off as God's spiritual people. And that's why John declared 
to legitimate Israelites, what he said to legitimate Israelites, legitimately, outwardly God's people, do not presume to, presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So that's my uh, brief, well, maybe not so brief, summary of the material that we've covered thus far. So now we're going to go on and we're going to look at John's baptism of Jesus himself. But do you have any questions about what we've covered so far before I move on? Okay, <clears throat> then let's look at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. We've covered stage, what I'm calling stage one, and now we're going to move on to stage two. Let's begin by reading about that. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to read beginning with the, the first verse. Now I'm reading from the NASB, so I apologize for those of you who probably have the ESV. <coughs> but my working Bible for over 40 years has been the NASB, and I'm sticking with it. So it'll be close enough to what you've got. <clears throat> So Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, saying, Judea, saying, saying <clears throat> Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a Lither belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Reminds you of Elijah. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now skip down to verse 13. <clears throat> then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is John, permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behind, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens say, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.
as we begin to consider then the baptism of, of John, <clears throat> what is the most, what I think would be the most obvious question that would come to your mind as you think about the baptism of John and Jesus then coming to him for that baptism? Yeah, why in the world is Jesus coming to John to be baptized by him whose baptism is a baptism of repentance? Now, there are some liberal theologians that point to this as evidence that Jesus himself regarded himself as a sinner and that it was later his disciples who um, kind of elevated him to a point of divinity. But we know that the scriptures don't teach that, and I'm not going to spend any time with this group uh, dealing with that particular subject. We, we know that the Bible teaches that he was without sin. So we're not going to accept that as an answer. Well, when we wonder then why Jesus was being baptized, he who was sinless, why was he being baptized with a baptism of repentance? We're actually in pretty good company. <laughs> because you know why? John wondered the same thing, didn't he? <clears throat> and so we read in Matthew what we just read. Matthew says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And I went out and did a literal translation of that. Literally, John is saying, and if you look at the Greek, the I is very emphatic and the U is emphatic as well. I have need by you to be baptized. And you are coming to me? John wondered the very thing that we would wonder. Now, I don't know exactly what John might have known about Jesus. What are some of the things that John might have known about Jesus that would be significant here? Okay, he would know that he himself was designed to be the forerunner of the Messiah and that he is the one who is there to prepare the way for him. And by the way, to prepare the way for the Lord from Isaiah, the word Lord is Jehovah. And yet here's the one, here's Jesus. Okay, what, what, else, what else did he know about John? Or did John know about what, what Say that again. He probably knew how he was conceived. Okay. Didn't Mary come and visit Elizabeth? Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Mary was just, just pregnant. No doubt they discussed among themselves their remarkable pregnancies. <laughs> and uh, was, did not John the Baptist, even the Bible says, leaped in the womb when Mary came along. So I, I think it's a very safe conclusion that John knew of the remarkable birth, the virgin birth of Jesus. And so he knows something about this guy. He, here is one who is born of a virgin. Anything else he might have known or had it in his perspective? John uh, witnessed Jesus' life and followed Okay, so John um, saw some of Jesus' life and... Um, I think there probably near the end of his, his life, um, he, he didn't 
you know exactly who Jesus was, which is why I'm kind of getting ahead of some, but you know, later on it says um, he didn't know who he was. He didn't recognize Jesus. I think he didn't, what he didn't recognize, he didn't recognize him as a man at that point, but um, because he probably hadn't seen him for a good while. But, you know, in it all, even his family, his disciples, and everybody, I mean, you might in your mind try to put together this, he created the world. Mm-hmm. You're watching him walk around in the garden with So, you know, as he watches, as he watches things unfold, you know, taking and hiding his heart like Mary did in hers, as these things are unveiled, mm-hmm. my what an excitement in his life. Yeah, there's a Even kind of the doubts and the struggles, right? Yes, yes. There's a kind of a gradual unveiling of of and Jesus hadn't entered his public ministry, and that's what this is part, partly all about. Well, another thing, another thing we know is that John, when he saw Jesus, he felt, I am not worthy to be baptized by you. I'm not even worthy to unloose your your sandals. So we don't know all that John might have known about Jesus. <clears throat> But, G, but John asked, so John asked this question, um, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And what is John's kind of intention? What's he trying to do here with regard to Jesus coming to him for baptism? Text tells you. What, what is John trying to do with regard to Jesus' attempt to be baptized? He's trying to stop him. It says Jesus, John would have prevented him. He didn't want him to be, he said, he's, he's, he doesn't want this to happen. Well, what's Jesus' answer to him when he says, I need to be baptized with you, and do you come to me? What's Jesus' answer? I think Jesus' answer tells us why he's going to be baptized. So let's look at that. <clears throat> Jesus answered him saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Then he consented. Now I want to, what I want to do is I want to look carefully at Jesus' answer, at the different parts of Jesus' answer, because I think they will give us a clue as to why the sinless one would be baptized by a baptism of repentance. <clears throat> First of all, look at the term, the, the first few words there, let it be. Let it be. The NASB translates that, allow it, allow it. What what does that tell you? When somebody says to you something like, um, let it be so, what does that tell you? I think that it tells you that there's a recognition on Jesus' part that John, in a certain sense, was right. He did not need a baptism of repentance. And it's as though Jesus said, yes, John, you are right. I have no personal need for repentance. I have no personal need for the forgiveness of sins. But there is another reason that I'm here. So permit it. Allow it to be so. There is no condition within Jesus himself requiring repentance in the baptism. There is a condition outside of Jesus, an objective grounds for his being baptized. I believe that's what is happening here, and I believe that's why Jesus uses that little phrase, let it be so, permit it, 
It's contrary to what is the normal meaning of your baptism, but permit it anyway. He's not saying, oh, John, yeah, I need need it. No, he's saying, permit it, allow it anyway. So the normal meaning of John's baptism did not apply to Jesus since it normally had to do with personal repentance and forgiveness. Now, if Jesus then is to be baptized, he's going to be baptized on grounds other than the subjective need. There's going to be objective grounds for his being baptized. And what are those objective grounds? Well, Jesus himself, I I believe, gives us two indications. No condition within Jesus himself requiring it. There's no subjective grounds. There are going to be objective grounds. What are they? There are two things that he says in his answer that I believe gives us a clue. The first, and we're going to look at each of these. The first is he uses the term now, which I think believe means the historical time and situation call for it. And then secondly, he says it is to fulfill all righteousness, which means that there is a mission to be accomplished. And let's look at each of those two terms. Jesus said, let it be so now. Let it be so now. These are objective grounds. The term now has to do with the historical time and situation. It has to do with the transition, the transition from old covenant to new covenant. And the the word now actually is a a word in Greek that that is to be distinguished from past and future. In other words, he's saying that there's something about the present time in the history of redemption that calls for my baptism, even though I personally have no need. So the objective necessity does not exist under all circumstances and under all times. It did not exist 100 years before that and would not exist after his, his death and resurrection. It was, a, it was a time in the history of redemption, the now time, that called for his baptism. It's a time of transition from old covenant to new covenant. And let's look at some of the, some of the um, indications of this, by the way, in the scriptures themselves. Remember, that the Apostle Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Well, when did he come? He came at the fullness of time, the fullness of time. You see, there was a time aspect. There's a now aspect that made it appropriate for Jesus to be baptized. Then I think we get insight from the, on this with regard to Jesus' discussion at the woman at the well. Early in John, John chapter 4, remember Jesus went to uh, the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman, a half-breed, which I think points to this universalization aspect. But she's a half-breed. And what does Jesus say in this, his conversation with her? He says, "Our uh, well, the woman at the well, who is a, a Samaritan, um, said, okay, on this mountain, I believe it's Mount Gerizim, uh, on this mountain, which is where the, the, the Samaritans had set up worship, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship, she says to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You Samaritans are setting up worship here on a mountain that God had not ordained. 
We worship what we know. We are worshiping where God had established his, the center of his worship. And that was in Jerusalem. In fact, the Old Testament calls God the God of Jerusalem. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah was going to come through the Jews. But then he says to this woman, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. But notice what he says to this woman. An hour is coming. We're neither in the, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God is doing away with the Jerusalem as the center of worship. He is reorganizing his people. It is no longer going to be a theocracy. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here. And so I believe that when Jesus is giving John reason for his being baptized. He's saying, there is a now time. There is a time now that calls for this. There is a significant transition going on so that it calls for my being baptized by you. But that doesn't answer all the questions, though, does it? Still, we ask ourselves, well, why why was Jesus baptized? Yes, the time called for it, and I think Jesus indicates. But what other objective grounds did he give? <clears throat> and the second, I think, that is helpful for us is that he says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that what does that mean? It might mean, some have thought, it might mean, well, I need to be baptized by you in order to do what is necessary for me to remain a righteous person. Well, what's the problem with that? He is a righteous person, and some would argue, well, but he needs to maintain that righteousness, so to maintain it, he has to be baptized by John. What, what problem do you have with that? Works. What was that? Works. Um, well, okay, it would be a work. What? What's that? He was sinless, so he didn't need it. Okay, well, first of all, he didn't need it because he was sinless, for sure. And let me ask you this. Where, where is there ever a command that a righteous person has to be baptized. There's no command that required Jesus to be baptized. There was no law that required him to be baptized as a righteous man. No. So, like humility, like he was exercising humility. Okay, well, some would argue that that might argue, well, he was just being humble here. Um, but I think there's a more significant reason, and let me uh, let me tell you what I think that that is. So <clears throat> he says, uh, just to, to kind of 
set the stage here. He says, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The word thus means in this way, in this manner. That is, I believe he's saying, what, 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 is, John, what is Jesus doing when he gets baptized? He's, he's standing in the place that a sinner would stand, isn't he? He's standing in the place with those who are, who, are, who are required to confess their sins or repent and confess their sins and then be baptized. That's where he's standing when he's baptized. So I believe that he's saying, in this way, by my standing in the place of sinners, by my taking the, the place of sinners, we will fulfill all righteousness. And then the word fulfill, that is the same term that is used to describe the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew uses it over and over and over again in his gospel when he says, uh, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, or this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, or, or Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill. So this term is used over and over again by Matthew in his gospel, the idea of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Well, what are some of the Old Testament prophecies that might have a bearing upon this? I believe that Jesus is saying, by my standing in the place of sinners, I need no repentance, but I am going to stand in the place of sinners by my baptism, and in this way, we are going to fulfill all righteousness. What were some of the righteous... Um, what, what, is, what, were, what, what, what were the Old Testament prophecies that could be fulfilled by Jesus? Well, I'm just going to point to you to two. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. The Lord says, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you should be called the city of righteousness. Now, I don't have time to go into all the typology between, behind Israel and, and Judah uh, being um, uh, symbolic of the people of God or being a type of the people of God. But just notice that afterward, you shall be called, God's people shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city, Zion, that is God's people, will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with, with righteousness. But wrongdoers and sinners together will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will come to an end. So there's this prophecy in Isaiah that there is coming a day when there are going to be re repentant, one, repentant ones are going to be redeemed by righteousness and there is going to, they're going to even in fact be called a city of righteousness. Look what Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah 33, just shortly after the, the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and that promise has to do with the, the, the new covenant, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Who is that righteous branch? We know who that is, Right? That's Jesus, that's the, that's the Messiah, that's the Christ. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Israel and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Yeah, now the old, again, Jerusalem in terms of the place the sinner is going to be done away with, but Jerusalem as being the heavenly people of God, as Hebrews talks about, they're going to dwell safely and securely. And in this and this is the name by which it will be called, this new city of righteousness. 
they will be called by the name, the Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness. So he is going to be a righteous branch. He's going to execute righteousness. He's going to bring in a righteous kingdom. And as the righteous king, he brings in a righteous kingdom. He's going to make his subjects righteous. And that whole kingdom is going to ultimately be characterized by nothing but righteousness in its final form. And so the Lord is our righteousness. God's, Jehovah's righteousness becomes ours. This is prophesied under the old covenant. And so I believe then that this is what is being referred to when it says to that he is going to fulfill all righteousness. The same term used to describe these Old Testament prophecies has to do with Jesus establishing a righteousness for his people. And also, one of the things I'll point out here, and that's this last note on, on the screen, in that, it, that he says it is, it, is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John is involved in this. John has a part to play. It's not the same part that Jesus has. John's part is to baptize the Messiah and to identify who he is and to prepare the way for him and announce him. Jesus' part is, of course, to be the Messiah and to accomplish the will of his Father, uh, the will that God had sent him to accomplish. And that involved standing in the place of sinners. And so, um, the, that's another reason why I say there are, are objective grounds, not subjective grounds, requiring Jesus to be baptized. Objective, because it even includes, John has a part in that. John, John's uh, baptism has a part in that. So, Jesus is not, uh, John is not, and John is not, by Jesus' baptism, seeking to remain a righteous person. This is not John's trying to maintain his righteousness by baptizing Jesus. That's not what it's meant by for us to fulfill all righteousness. But it can be the common purpose of both Jesus and John to fulfill the prophecies that spoke of the establishment of a kingdom of righteousness and give righteousness to repentant ones because John's role was to baptize the Messiah who was the righteous one and Jesus' role was to stand then in the place of sinners. And so Jesus is saying, your baptism, John, is for sinners. who have repented. I need no repentance. Nevertheless, allow my baptism at this time in the history of redemption because I came to redeem sinners by standing in their place. In my baptism, I'm going to be standing in the place of sinners. And it is by my taking their sins upon myself that I will accomplish salvation. In his baptism, then Jesus is identifying with sinners. It is Jesus' identification with sinners that will bring about the righteousness that was promised in his righteous kingdom. It points to Jesus' solidarity, what we call solidarity with sinners, and it points to our union with Christ. And it is precisely by Jesus' identification with and standing in the place of sinners that we are going to be justified. Think of this. Jesus stands in the place of sinners in baptism. What happens in justification? which means to be declared righteous. Jesus stands in the place of sinners. And so Jesus is saying, 
In this way, by my standing in the place of sinners, we are going to bring about the righteous kingdom. We are going to fulfill all the promises of righteousness that the Old Testament gave us. And so the meaning is that in this way, by standing in this place of sinners, the promised righteousness is going to be brought to pass. So, so let it be, let it be, John, let it be. And so Jesus, and, and where is this in Jesus' life? This is at the very beginning of his public ministry. He has now entered into a public ministry by means of his baptism. And there's going to come a day at the end of his mission in his ministry and when he's going to hang on the cross. In both, he is standing in the place of sinners. He is taking our place. It begins at his baptism. It extends throughout his life and his obedience throughout his life from his public ministry on is going to be imputed to us. That righteousness is going to be imputed to us in justification. And then he's going to die in our place, taking our sins upon himself, the cross. And so I believe that what is happening here is Jesus is saying, I am come, John, to stand in the place of sinners, so baptize me. I don't need repentance, but I am taking the sins of the world upon myself. And so his whole ministry is bracketed by his standing in the place of sinners, the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And so in this way, Jesus, I believe, is saying, by my standing in the place of sinners, the promised righteousness will be brought to pass. And here, I think, is what we can call Jesus' identification with sinners, the solidarity that we have with him, his representation, his substitution, our union with Christ. All this, I believe, is pointed to in Jesus' baptism. See where we are here. Okay, a couple more minutes. Any questions about that before I make two additional comments? Yes, Cliff. This is all very interesting to me because I've never thought deeply about this. I've always thought that part of the reason is just Jesus was just identifying as publicly identifying as part of this movement that he would lead. It would be kind of weird if the leader didn't at least say, I'm on, I'm on the team. Is that part of it too, just a publicly letting everyone know he's, we're all, I'm on your team, I'm, I'm the leader of the team, but I'm, I'm on you. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, he, well, we're going to talk about this actually next week, so that's kind of a good segue into next week. Um, I think that there is a way and a sense in which Jesus is then um, validating what John is doing. Um, however, I think one might say, well, the leader would be the one doing the baptizing. So I'm not so sure it's to point him out as so much the leader as, the, as it is maybe in the sense, you know, that he's validating John's baptism in a certain sense and therefore validating John's message that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But um, I, think that the, I think that there's got to be more to it than that. That's my, that's my judgment. Yes, John. Would you say there was some humiliation in the Lord Jesus doing this? Like the water would have been mucky and nasty. The religious elites kind of stood back and didn't take part in it. Uh, yeah, that that could be. But there were Pharisees. Let me turn this thing off. 
There were Pharisees and Pharisees who came to him to be baptized, and they were going to get in the yucky water. So um, they, they kind of, you know, there's humiliation there, to be sure. Um, that's, you, you could use the word humiliation to characterize this whole coming to the earth. Um, but uh, the other, there were others who were willing to be humiliated like that. Didn't it also show his death, burial, and resurrection that was to come? when he would do the substitutionary, penal substitutionary. Yeah, I think that that is, is going to be involved in the whole concept of baptism by immersion. Which, by the way, leads me to one of the points I want to mention, and that is uh, some people will, will <laughs> refer to the fact that uh, he says that he, uh, he went up immediately from the water in that particular, um, in, the, in, in Matthew's Gospel, he went up from the water, and some will say, well, he was just kind of standing in the water, maybe ankle deep, and, you know, John sprinkled some water on him. He just kind of went up from the water. Um, but um, in, uh, in contrary to that, I would say Mark says that, to literally put it, Mark says that he baptized Jesus into the Jordan, and he uses a preposition there, into, that um, means just that putting something into something else. And if you don't transliterate the word baptize, and if you translate the word baptize, it would mean that he immersed, he immersed him into the water. And so you, know, you can look at, at Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 in that regard. So, um, and, and by the way, the concept of, you know, Jesus was baptized, he was immersed, and then he went up from the water, that makes perfect sense as, just as, as well. Regard to the mode. Lap, yes. Why are certain denominations so opposed to immersion? Why, why won't they just immerse? I think their their big thing is um, that they they're not so much opposed to immersion itself, because there are some even like John Calvin or uh, I think uh, R.C. Sproul will kind of even admit that um, you know immersion is 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 a valid means. But they're, what they want to prove, what they want to push is infant baptism. And of course, a lot of them say, well, practically it's never good to immerse infants. Although there are some who do that. Well, let me, let me conclude by saying this. Jesus then stands at the beginning of his public ministry about, um, <clears throat> about to embark on the task that his father had given him to give his life a ransom for many. And, and he is aware that of Isaiah 53 that says that God the Father is going to crush him. And so he stands in the place of sinners at the very beginning of his ministry saying, yes, I am going to, I'm going to fulfill that mission that God has sent me to fulfill. I'm going to do that task that God has given me to do, knowing, knowing Isaiah 53, Jesus knew Isaiah 53, knowing that the Father was going to crush him at the end. And so Jesus embarks on this at the very beginning of his public ministry in such a way that he's identifying with sinners and he is standing in their place. And you know, brothers, that, that means us. He was identifying with us. He was standing in our place. And what happens? What happens? The heavens open up. And unlike many other things that Jesus ever does in, in his ministry, the heavens open up and a voice from heaven comes down. God the Father sends his, the dove to 
to be a part, to strengthen Jesus, to empower Jesus. And then he speaks from heaven, not a thing that happens every day. He speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is going to stand in the place of sinners. I am going to have to crush him. He is willing to do that. He is willing to take the place of sinners and be baptized by John in a baptism of repentance. And I am well pleased with that. And if the Father was well pleased, brothers and sisters, shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we be pleased with what Jesus did on our behalf? That he was willing to stand in the place of sinners not only in his baptism, but ultimately as he hangs on the cross and takes our sins upon himself. May his baptism be a cause of rejoicing and praise to us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to stand in our place. Thank you for your baptism and for all that it means. And if we don't fully understand and comprehend everything that it means, Lord, enlarge our hearts to do so. But Lord, may we never, ever have a different attitude than what the Father himself had who said he was well pleased in his Son after his baptism. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Next week we will talk about... The Judean baptisms or Jesus baptizing others. And we'll probably even go on and even talk about the Great Commission, uh, the baptism in the Great Commission next week, too. Part of his uh, active or passive obedience? Yes. Both? <laughs> well, I think it's part of his active obedience. I've always thought about the cross being a passive obedience. So get it? Well, it